Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, A Cass's Belly Project. This week, we conclude Hitler's rise through the Nazi party, and then actually begin the war with the invasion of Poland. So let's begin Episode 3, A Beer Hall Coup and an Invasion 2. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. When Hitler first arrived to spy on the National Socialist German Workers' Party, just try saying that name in German, in September of 1919, it was only 25 men strong. They were a cross-section of blue-collar city life. There were soldiers, laborers, pseudo-intellectual writers, and peddlers of small goods, all people who would suffer in the depression that struck in the aftermath of the war. Their organizer and founder was a railroad machinist named Anton Drexler. The party he founded was an ideological mutt, drawing on an eclectic mix of socialist, pseudo-scientific racial, and nationalist ideas. He believed that the workers must rise up in society, but also despised strikers, and was a supporter of the war. It was also not unique. There were dozens of extremist far-right and far-left parties popping up all over Munich and Germany. What made the National Socialists unique was member number 55, who joined on New Year's Day, 1920. Hitler rose through the ranks quickly. When he joined, he was already a member of the executive committee and soon was chief recruiter for the party. He found many willing prospects in the List Regimental Barracks where he still lived. Here, he enlisted his most loyal henchman, Rudolf Hess, his one-day deputy Führer. Hitler also recruited Ernst Röhm in his first year. Röhm was serving as the chief of staff of the military governor of Munich at the same time, making him a sizable catch. Of course, Röhm went on to command the SA, colloquially known as the Brown Shirts, for their distinctive uniforms. Röhm was Hitler's only equal in the party. And as we already discussed, this would be his undoing. Within a month of joining, Hitler had written up a sort of party manifesto with Drexler, known as the 25 Points. He delivered it in a massive rally of 2,000 at a beer hall. Not all of those present were card-carrying Nazis, but many were sympathetic to Nazi ideas. During the speech, he railed against the government in Berlin and attacked the Jews for causing runaway inflation. He attacked the rival upstart parties in Munich and the communists. Working the crowd into an uproar, he inflamed the rival party members and communists present and brought the place to the verge of a riot. That no violence erupted was a miracle, but the presence of vicious, proto-fascist street brawlers probably helped convince most present not to instigate any fights. Hitler was a master showman. He knew how to manipulate a crowd and raise the tension to palpable levels. There would be 15 more rallies in 1920, and during each one he refined his technique. 
He would study the layout of the beer halls beforehand to know the best places to enter and exit to elicit the best response. He would allow in hecklers for the express purpose of getting them to rile up the crowd, then have his thugs beat the poor man mercilessly. He learned the power of repetition well from attending mass in his youth and utilized it to great effect on crowds, ratcheting up their emotions. He would arrive late to rallies to amplify his entrance. When the crowd worked itself into a frenzy, a cohort of bodyguards would march in, followed by the strutting Hitler. When he took the stage, he would slowly amplify his speeches, beginning modestly but building in intensity until he was shouting and gesturing violently. By the end, he would be drenched in sweat and exhausted, but the crowd was his. He controlled them, and the party no longer had anything to do with workers' rights or restoring Germany. It was his party, a cult of personality that worshipped him alone, and he knew it. With his power and notoriety growing, Hitler was able to recruit the great flying ace of the war into the party. Hermann Goering had been a member of Baron von Richthofen's famous flying circus and was still young and dashing. He had not yet succumbed to his vices and grown into the living embodiment of hedonism. Ecstatic at recruiting such a high-profile member, Hitler gave Goering a high-profile position, commander of the newly formed SA. By 1923, Hitler would introduce the swastika as the party's totem and organize his bodyguards into the Saalschutz, dressing them in imposing black uniforms that would eventually be the hallmark of the dreaded SS. He had also begun using the title Unzerführer, our leader. He even was able to lure in the likes of Erich Ludendorff, the great general of the war who had come to be the de facto ruler of Germany when the Kaiser proved incompetent. After losing the war, Ludendorff had gotten a bit nutty, to say the least and he entertained grand Wagnerian fantasies of Teutonic gods rising to redeem Germany. Hitler embodied those fantasies for Ludendorff. Not to mention that Wagner's surviving relatives had welcomed Hitler on his pilgrimage to Wagner's grave, lending him a degree of mythological occult status. Money was pouring into the party in the form of dues and entrance fees to the rallies. With each one bringing in thousands of attendees, Hitler had considerable wealth at his fingertips, but he did not use it for personal pleasure. After moving out of the barracks, he rented a small apartment and lived frugally. Not out of any sense of righteous poverty, but because his focus was singular. He had no need of material goods. The party was his only passion, and it fulfilled his needs. It was in this environment of growing power and influence that Hitler devised the infamous Beer Hall Putsch. Hitler was enamored with the idea of seizing power in a coup or Putsch, in German, like Mussolini had. He saw how the fascist party had taken power across various Italian cities, then marched on the capital, and Hitler dreamed of doing the same. So on November 8, 1923, he made his move. The Munich government had been summoned to a meeting at the Keller, one of the many massive beer halls of the city, hence the name Beer Hall Putsch. Knowing the whole of the government would be in this one location, Hitler organized a raid, Armed with machine guns and revolvers, Hitler and his bodyguard drove to the beer hall in trucks. When they arrived, they stormed in, then Hitler and Goering seized the podium. Hitler declared that the Munich government was deposed, and the local garrison and police force had joined the revolution. He told them that 600 Nazi stormtroopers held the hall and to surrender, and that Honorable General Ludendorff would soon arrive. Of course, this was all theatrics. There were only about 60 of Hitler's bodyguards there, and neither the army nor the police had joined his movement. 
This imperial routine may have succeeded had Hitler not ruined the act by removing his trench coat, revealing his ill-fitting trousers, and chugging a beer. He resembled the famous actor, Charlie Chaplin, playing a doofus, and that is when he lost the crowd. He no longer commanded their respect, and they nearly burst into laughter. Ludendorff did, in fact, arrive, though. He accepted command of the Reichswehr and seemed to follow along with Hitler's quickly unraveling plan. When a messenger arrived from Ernst Röhm that he had captured the war ministry, Hitler left the hall to head to the military barracks. There, he tried to convince them to join him, or at least surrender. They declined his offer. Defeated there, he returned to the Burgerbrau Keller, only to find that some of the captured officials were nowhere to be seen. Hitler rightly feared that they were planning a counter-revolution. While the government officials moved to suppress the revolution, Hitler ran around Munich giving impassioned speeches, trying to drum up support. It was in vain, and in reality his coup never had a hope of success. Unlike Mussolini, Hitler's party didn't have influence outside of its hometown, nor did it have the support of the army. The next day, when the 3,000 Nazis marched on the town center, they were confronted by the police, who dispersed them, and after a brief skirmish, 18 Nazis and three policemen were dead. Hitler tried to escape, but was captured after just a few days. On February 26, 1924, he was sentenced to five years in prison. Hitler would serve nine months of his sentence, if you would call it that. He spent it living like a king. He received so many care packages from loyal followers and admiring women that he hardly wanted for anything. In fact, he had a surplus of luxuries that he doled out to the guards to make his stay more pleasant. He ate sausage and ham and drank wine sent to him. He had a cell to himself, but he daily received visitors in mail. He even arranged for Rudolf Hess to be convicted of a crime and bunk with him so that he could continue his loyal service with him there. And Hess was only too happy to oblige. He would often address his fellow Nazi prisoners and sat at the head of a long dining table at meals, where he would discuss his various passions and interests. He would often receive guests, sometimes admirers, and sometimes party officials there to conduct party business. Hitler's main achievement while incarcerated was dictating his magnum opus to Hess, Mein Kampf. In it, he spelled out his vision for Lebensraum, detailing how he intended to clear out the east of Slavs for his Germanic empire. He elaborated on his hatred for the Jews and his belief in the German Ubermensch. Into it he poured all of his malice and maniacity. He described how he wished to destroy civilization as it existed and rebuild it in his image. It was not the simple ravings of a madman, though. This was the seminal work of years of thought about a subject, however horrible, that he had dissected inside and out. Its real genius was not in its ideas, though, but in its execution. It was a master work of manipulation and propaganda, a master crafted tool made to warp the mind to the will of its writer. It would sell millions of copies in Germany. Upon his release, Hitler had learned his lesson about trying to overthrow the government using force. From now on, he would attempt to seize power through legitimate means. At the beginning of 1925, after his release, he had a long way to go. The party was gutted and demoralized from its defeat in the Putsch and from having its leader incarcerated, even for a short time. They had no money, no headquarters, and their newspaper had been confiscated by the government. In his first attempt to stir up his supporters at a massive rally of 2,000 followers, he got back some of his swagger, 
but afterward the authorities revoked his public speaking license for two years. Unable to hold rallies without being locked up again, he committed himself to writing for the party's revived newspaper and recruiting. During this time, he was able to wrangle his most conniving of psychophants, Martin Bormann, Joseph Goebbels, and Heinrich Himmler. Goebbels was a small, frail man with a club foot and a limp, and it bred in him a deep inferiority complex. He was far from an imposing figure, and hardly fit in with the likes of the brawlers Sepp Dietrich and Ernst Röhm. No, Goebbels brought something entirely different to Hitler's arsenal of malice. He was probably the brightest of all the Nazis, and he used his intellect to charm those around him, and for much darker purposes beyond that. Goebbels would eventually become the Nazi regime's chief propagandist, and was responsible for building Hitler into a Germanic messiah. He was a manipulator as well, and was notorious for leveraging young starlets into bed with him. Lastly, and most ghoulishly, he was an enthusiastic contributor to the final solution. Himmler was another small man with a grudge against the world. His military career was stillborn. He had been a cadet in Bavaria, but never achieved a commission. Afterward, he attempted to make a living selling fertilizer to no great success. The only place he was able to succeed was within the Nazi party. Though he would become inactive for a few years, upon his return he would become the craven leader of the SS and intimately involved in orchestrating the Holocaust. For all the misery he caused, Himmler was a meek, soft man. He was a hypochondriac and couldn't stomach the sight of blood. This partly led to the SS using gas chambers rather than bullets to execute their prisoners, to save their leader from having to imagine his victims bleeding. Then there was Martin Bormann. He would eventually become Hitler's personal secretary and something of a puppet master. He controlled who met with the Fuhrer and what news he received. He was always plotting to remove rivals, and by 1943 effectively ran the country while Hitler was busy ordering his generals and marshals around. Though he is less notorious than either Himmler or Goebbels are today, he was no less wicked. With these three in tow, Hitler would rebuild the party. The going was slow at first. Though party membership quadrupled between 1925 and 1927, from about 25,000 to around 100,000, this was a far cry from a national coalition. The Nazis had virtually no influence outside of Bavaria, and controlled only 12 seats of 491 in 1928. Even the communists controlled 54 seats in the Reichstag. Economic prosperity and wise leadership were to blame. A happy, well-employed populace is not one that is prone to revolution, and Hitler knew it. The venerable Hindenburg was president and provided a steady hand to calm the country. The heady, violent days of 1919 were long gone, and the country seemed to be recovering. The year 1929 would change Germany's fortunes, though, and Hitler's. Though the party was struggling to stay afloat electorally, it was not in want of funding. The wealthy had become enamored with Hitler, and somehow got the idea in their heads that he was a monarchist who would reinstate the Hohenzollern dynasty of Prussia. They showered Hitler with gifts and political contributions. Having grown out of his asceticism over the years, Hitler left his small flat in Munich and moved into a luxurious apartment, bringing with him his servants, his Mercedes, and his young lover. Geli Rabul was the daughter of Hitler's half-sister, making their relationship mildly incestuous, resulting in more than a few judgmental glances in the Nazi party. The relationship appeared to be fairly genuine, though. 
Of course, anytime Hitler and sex come up in the same sentence, all manner of wild theories and psychobabble inevitably get involved. That I do not wish to entertain. Hitler is enough of a vile figure without making him into some kind of sex pervert, too. Regardless, Gelly would kill herself in 1931 after getting into an argument with her uncle. Hitler would mourn her deeply for weeks, suggesting he was genuinely in love with her. He even maintained what was probably a rather unhealthy obsession with her after her death. Her room was left intact and decorated with fresh flowers for years in a sort of memorial, and a life-size painting of her was hung in the Ober Salzburg. I'll admit this behavior is somewhat odd, but I'd sooner chalk it up to his history of being unable to handle grief dating back to the death of his brother than being a pervert. This is a history podcast, though. Listen to Dr. Crane's show if you want psychology. 1929 would be a year of mixed blessings. The stock market crash would throw Germany back into discord as unemployment and inflation once again reared their ugly heads. The economic turmoil led to political turmoil as the country took to extremes, half moving leftward towards communism, the other half moving right towards fascism. The National Socialists were able to win 107 seats in the 1928 election, outpacing the communists who had swelled their parliamentary ranks to 77. By 1932, the party had continued to accrue power and become the primary opposition to the government. In a runoff election against Hindenburg, they took 37% of the vote. Not enough to govern, but enough to obstruct governance. In return for a functioning government, Hitler demanded that Hindenburg make him chancellor. Begrudgingly, Hindenburg accepted. Hitler was installed as chancellor on January 30, 1933. In only a month, the Reichstag would be ablaze. That, of course, brings us up to speed. We now turn our attention back to late August 1939, just hours prior to kickoff. If you recall, the Allies had guaranteed Poland, and Germany had signed its non-aggression pact with Russia. Europe was preparing for war, but it was up to Hitler to start the clock, to continue the sports metaphor. Time would begin ticking on the night of August 31st, 1939. Operation Himmler was the German false flag project masterminded, unsurprisingly, by Heinrich Himmler. I suppose he decided to name it after himself, seeing as he's the one who planned it, Willy Stark style. Anyway, on the night of August 31st, under cover of darkness, German operatives, dressed in Polish uniforms, stormed several locations on the German side of the border with Poland. The key target was the radio station in Gliwice, Naglavici. There, they played a message in Polish announcing that the town was occupied by Polish forces and that the Polish invasion of Germany was at hand. To make the operation more dramatic, for the soon-to-arrive police and press, the operatives staged bodies of prisoners they had gunned down in Polish uniforms. This was the pretext Hitler wanted for his invasion, to at least make it appear defensive to those Germans gullible enough to believe it. Obviously, the ruse was transparent to the Allies and pretty much the rest of the world, but that mattered little to Hitler. On paper, the Polish army may have seemed formidable. It was 1.7 million men strong, with an additional 800,000 men in reserve, and an air force of 450 planes. Unfortunately, this army was designed for a different kind of war. It was composed almost entirely of infantry, though it did have a tank force of about 130, some of which, like the Renault and Vickers tanks, were on par with or superior to Panzer I's and II's. Disastrously, though, only about 500,000 men were actually under arms when the war began. Most had yet to be mobilized. 
It also had enormous cavalry formations. The cavalry may well have been quite effective against a different enemy, one with a large conscript army fighting on endless open plains like the Soviet enemy they had faced in 1920, but not against a postmodern armored strike force of professional soldiers like the Wehrmacht. Though the popular idea of lances and sabers charging against tanks is a total anachronism, this was largely the product of German propaganda made to portray the Poles as backward savages. This was then picked up by the Allies and propagated to breed sympathy for the defeated Poles. In reality, the cavalry operated as a reconnaissance force and dragoons, and were outfitted with highly effective 37mm Bofors anti-tank guns. They were more fast-moving infantry than shock forces. In the end, though, the Poles' plan relied on Elan and a counteroffensive from France to save them, neither of which would prove sufficient. Though their soldiers fought courageously, they were no match for the sophisticated German army. Compounding Poland's problems was geography. Poland is essentially just a plain that blends from Central to Eastern Europe with essentially no natural boundaries. In Western Poland, there are no hills, swamps, or large rivers. It is perfect ground for an armored advance. This featureless expanse stretched for almost 2,000 miles on the Polish-German border in 1939. Marshal Smigli Rydz could have abandoned Western Poland to defend behind the Vistula, but he considered this untenable. What would be left to defend? Not that it would matter after the Soviet Union launched its offensive. In addition, the Poles had to contend with the fact that they were already outflanked on the right by the German enclave in East Prussia, from which the Wehrmacht could strike their rear on day one. So it was under these conditions that Fall Weiss, Plan White, was launched in the small hours of September 1st, 1939. The German forces were divided into two overarching formations. Army Group North attacked from Pomerania and East Prussia. Army Group South from Silesia and Slovakia. The German armored divisions immediately punched enormous holes in Polish lines. The Poles were able to offer stiff resistance in some places, but Blitzkrieg is reliant upon exploiting weakness, not destroying strong points. And weak points abounded. Armored spearheads drove deep into Polish territory, followed by light infantry who consolidated those gains and secured supply lines. Behind enemy lines, the German units were able to destroy command and control nodes and encircle Polish troops, leading them leaderless, cut off, and vulnerable. Simultaneously, the Luftwaffe's Stuka dive bombers did their deadly work. They bombed enemy command posts and destroyed Polish transportation, bringing newly mobilized men to the front. Though the Poles fought hard and bravely, they were simply technologically outgunned and caught off guard. When the Soviet Union invaded from the east on September 17th, the writing was on the wall, and Poland would be partitioned once again. The Poles mounted a valorous but futile last stand in Warsaw, in which the city would be leveled for the first time by the Germans. On September 28th, Warsaw radio played Chopin's death march, and the city capitulated. The government fled and will remain in exile for the remainder of the war. The invasion of Poland was an enormous success. Not only did Hitler expand his fascist empire, but Blitzkrieg had proved its worth. Hitler had utter confidence in his soldiers, and his generals had shown their brilliance. He felt invincible and vindicated. The Wehrmacht would not emerge unscathed, though. It would suffer just under 50,000 casualties, 19,000 of whom were killed or missing. The Germans would even lose nearly 700 tanks in the invasion, 
testament to the Pole's anti-tank weapons and ability to ambush armored columns in the dense medieval woodlands of the Polish countryside. Of course, this pales in comparison to the 200,000 Polish casualties, but it does go to show that the victory was not quite as one-sided as popularly held. It may have been quick, but it wasn't easy. Though few knew it, the Second World War had begun in earnest. France and the United Kingdom had declared war on Germany on September 3rd, but it wasn't necessarily clear that the war would expand to the farthest reaches of the globe. Hitler still hoped to reach an agreement with the Allies. It would be months before he realized that they would not simply allow him to keep Poland to himself. In Episode 4 of the Saga of World War II, we will cover the Winter War and the so-called Phony War between the invasion of Poland and the thrust into the Low Countries.